Welcome to Sagittarius Eye Audio Edition, Issue 3, November 3303. Word for word, the articles that appear in this month's Sagittarius Eye magazine, expertly recorded to keep you entertained and informed out in the black. Editorial, written by Souverine. On the 5th of November, 1605, back when humanity was a single planet species and numbered fewer than a billion souls, a terrorist plot to assassinate a king was foiled. Since then, we have annually celebrated this event via the noble pursuit of blowing things up and setting fire to them. It is ironic that this anarchic practice commemorates a failed revolution. This month, we also remember the end of humanity's first world war, a term that has lost meaning in this age of multi-star system conflicts. It was the first time our species managed to mechanize the process of slaughter. Never before had technology allowed us to kill each other with such inhumane efficiency. Worth switching off our hollow feeds for a couple of minutes to reflect on that, perhaps. It is also worth remembering how far life has improved for independent spacefarers since the advent of mass-market frameshift tries in 3300. Back then, as Eremus Kamsel recalls in his excellent interview this month, long-distance space travel was tedious and often hazardous. Now our drives are capable of surfing enormous distances between the stars on the plumes of stellar remnants, our maps are littered with strange and humbling alien sights that have been discovered, and our navigational computers can steer us through the stars with unrecognizable accuracy and sophistication. As our intrepid Rasutine reports, there are darker things in our recent history to remember too. The grisly mementos in the Inra bases unearthed over the last few weeks beg the question, do we have an obligation to be humane to that which isn't human? Distant Worlds Again, an interview with Commander Eremus, written by Wilfred Sephiroth. The 16th of December, 3300, a lone commander climbed aboard his ASP Explorer, set to travel further than any explorer had traveled before. A solitary expedition codenamed Distant Suns. Five weeks, 72,000 light years and 2,765 star systems later, Commander Eremus Kamzel jumped into one of the farthest stellar systems reachable from the bubble. CEECKIAZQ-LC24-0 is now better known to us all as Beagle Point, in honor of the first vessel to visit it. Commander Aramis's DSS Beagle. Several months later, Aramis recruited the help of another seasoned explorer, Dr. Kai, to plan another expedition. This time, it wouldn't be a one-man affair, but their hopes for recruiting a large number of participants were low. To their surprise, the expedition roster quickly grew to become the largest collective exploration travel the galaxy had ever known. Codenamed Distant Worlds, over 1,000 commanders departed from Palenai in January 3302, but only 571 brave explorers survived the journey and reached Beagle Point by the following June. During these six long months in the black, 
the participants on the Distant Worlds expedition charted the first galactic highway across the galaxy for the Galactic Mapping Project, or GMP. The highway consisted of the many Jumponium-rich systems scouted and discovered during the expedition, and subsequently charted on the GMP maps, along with the many new points of interest along the route taken. The galaxy, although immense and still mostly unexplored, was now a more familiar place. Its incomprehensibly vast spaces had been crossed by many who came back to tell their wondrous tales and our perception of our position in it was forever and irreversibly changed. Almost two years later, it looked like Eremis and Kai have not quite scratched that exploration itch. Indeed, Distant Worlds 2 was recently announced. Sagittarius I met Eremis for a quick chat about this new expedition. Hello, Eremis. What motivated you to embark in the solo expedition that became the Galactic Crossing Expedition? In late 3300, when the new frameshift drive, FSD, tech was being gamma-tested and hyperspace links beyond the bubble opened up, I embarked on a journey in a long-range Cobra Mark III to the Eta Carina Nebula via the Vila Molecular Ridge. It was a trip of 29,000 light-years there and back, as I came back via the Sagittarius near-arm rim, returning to all-in Enterprise with around 60% hull remaining. I documented that trip in the New Horizons vidlog diaries. Around the same time, Commander Zulu Romeo had made a successful flight to Sagittarius A-star and back in his Cobra Mark III, a round-trip of 46,000 light-years. It was those early pioneering trips out into the black that proved ships were capable of long-distance journeys. So it was those early adventures, along with the desire to test one's endurance, that motivated me personally. But I also hoped that the first galactic crossing would be recorded and archived for posterity, so I made a conscious decision to attempt the journey and document it in the distant sun's vidlog diaries. Once I had earned enough credits to purchase the at-the-time-newly-released Lacon Asp Explorer, I set off to travel to the most distant reachable systems possible for ships of that era. Back then there were very few non-solo trips, especially out into deep space. The first fleet expeditions were small in comparison to what we see today and were mainly localised to points of interest throughout the Orion Spur. Long endurance trips were invariably only attempted by solo explorers at the time. I remember being out on the far galactic rim and reflecting back on the journey and feeling the immensity of the galaxy and how far away humanity was. Couple that with the sheer loneliness in what later became known as the Solitude Void region, it's an experience that's been impossible to recapture. About that, how is travelling in the black alone a different experience than these larger expeditions. Do you have preferences? I think back then we knew very little about what was out there. We never had any star filters or long-range route plotters, no jumponium injections or engineered FSDs. The dangers of hyperspacing between a binary pair were unknown, and some of the early equipment available at the time often malfunctioned. The route plotter, for example, was limited to 100 light-years and completely failed once you went beyond the Norma expanse. 
So I guess solo exploration back then was akin to the ancient stories we read about solo mariners crossing old Earth's Atlantic Ocean in a sailboat back in antiquity. Even today we have a lot more hardware and technology that we never had in 3300, and the era of fleet expeditions is here to stay, it seems. Fleet exploration offers a new dimension to long-distance endurance trips, as now explorers have that social element and the shared experiences along the way to enjoy, and with that comes the backup and help available should anyone in the fleet need it. We have fuel rats, mechanics carrying hull repair limpets, and even rock rats willing to help a fellow pilot prospect for jamponium. Having said this, in my opinion, solo exploration will always be the first and foremost natural choice one makes when setting out as an explorer, as it offers a pilot a more visceral experience, and I think the majority of explorers are lone wolves at heart. Whereas large-scale expeditions with hundreds of fellow pilots all focused on achieving a specific set of mission goals offers commanders taking part a more interactive and cooperative experience when traversing the depths. For example, the Distant Worlds 3302 fleet was made up of over 1,300 pilots, all from different backgrounds, political affiliations and allegiances. Yet for one specific mission, they put aside all that and flew under one banner, one fleet, one team, helping and encouraging fellow fleet members to reach their goals. That's the power of fleet exploration, and in its own right, it's also a pretty unique experience. The original Distant Worlds has been the most successful expedition ever attempted by the Pilots' Federation. Can you share some particularly fond memory about it, or some funny anecdote? There are a few fondest memories. The expedition launch from Pellini being one, as it was a time of great excitement, frantic coordination, and the culmination of three months' prep work to get everything in place for the big day. Another fond memory was the visit to Drake's Ridge, the fifth waypoint. That place was one of the weirdest and most mysterious places on the whole trip, a world bathed in green sunlight and a layer of thick green mist, with reports of strange noises being heard in one of the mist-covered craters below the landing zone. And another memory was obviously Journey's End, the finale at Beagle Point, watching ship after ship come in to land at the Darwin's Legacy base camp culminating with live streams beamed back to human space, and the appearance of the enigmatic Commander Salome, who gave a speech at Sanctuary Hill overlooking the landing zone. After months of travel, 81,000 light-years across the galaxy, it was a fantastic climax to an amazing journey. A funny anecdote? One that I remember is watching the fleet flagship the Zombie Wasp a 1,000-ton T-9 laden with provisions come in to land at the first waypoint out at the Shapley-1 system. It glided in gracefully and made a perfect landing. In local comms, people congratulated its pilot Olivia Vispera for such a graceful touchdown, only to realise shortly after that Olivia was sat in her SRV two kilometres away, having recalled the ship, and it had been the AI flying it all along. So, looking forward... What can you tell us to introduce DW2? It's very early days yet, so I don't have specific details for the expedition, but I can say it'll be most likely a rerun of Distant Worlds 3302. 
DW2 will most likely be a similar route and will tie in with gathering map data and POIs for the Galactic Mapping Project, GMP. Initial indications show that it'll be just as popular as DW, with already over 600 pilots stating that they're interested in taking part, and there's still a whole year to go. We're expecting it to surpass distant worlds by some distance in the sheer numbers taking part. But will there be some specific objectives? Without going into specifics, I can give a brief outline of some of the aspects we intend to include this time around. Distant Worlds 2 will again incorporate mission goals issued via the Galactic Mapping Project, with an emphasis on biological research and surface point-of-interest charting, particularly locating and cataloguing geysers and fumaroles, geological surface features and again scouting of jumponium-rich worlds. But we're also planning on having more peripheral events and exploration-related projects incorporated into the overall journey this time around. At this early stage, the idea is to travel to the iconic system Beagle Point, where it's likely the expedition finale will again be held. But this is subject to change depending on the implementation of new discovery techniques, rumoured to be in development from several science and technology institutes linked to universal cartographics. If new areas of the galaxy require investigating and charting, the GMP may issue updated expedition goals next year, when we have more information. Is there a provisional timeline for preparations? In January 3304, myself and Dr. Kai will be recruiting an expedition team to work on and flesh out several exploration-related projects we hope to incorporate into the expedition. By late spring of 3304, I plan to have the first tentative scouting mission plans drawn up for the Galactic Mapping Project that will task the Distant World Scouting Team to map and chart specific locations across the galaxy. These locations will act as waypoints and base camps for the Distant Worlds 2 fleet as it journeys en route to the Abyss and beyond. An expedition itinerary and schedule is planned to be published by the late summer of 3304, with the official fleet roster registration following shortly after. Do you know if DW2 will be a six-month-long expedition like its predecessor? At this early stage, we're not sure. Back in 3302, we had no engineered frameshift drive engines, so maximum ranges within the fleet barely got above 40 light-years. The fleet average was around 33 light-years, so the time frame on that trip was geared around those kinds of ranges, and the time it would take for the fleet to travel from waypoint to waypoint. With the new technologies available today, a trip across the galaxy isn't so time-consuming as it once was, so there's a possibility that Distant Worlds 2 won't be as long as six months. But then again, it depends on what goals the mapping project set the expedition next summer. With longer jump ranges across the board, we do have an opportunity to do a lot more actual exploration and spend less time travelling, so the mission length will depend on those goals we set, and it's something that'll be announced in a few months' time. Speaking of the Galactic Mapping Project, how is it proceeding? Do you have a rough figure for the number of POIs included in it? Is there some lesser-known destination you think more people should visit? The GMP is becoming more and more popular. We've had more new submissions made to it this year than the previous 18 months. There are currently 57 regions and over 1,200 individual points of interest now marked on the community map. And although the project is community-driven and not sanctioned by Universal Cartographics, several of the GMP submissions have now been officially recognised, most notably Beagle Point, Rendezvous Point, Colonia, Hawking's Gap, and the Sagittarii Conflux. 
As for lesser-known destinations, currently there's relatively little known about the upper fourth quadrant. Mare Desperationis, the Abyssal Plain, Wagro's Reach, etc. Nor the upper first quadrant, the Bleaklands, the Tyros Ridge, Silentium, etc. Those remote regions are so far away that seldom few travel there. And despite there being one or two large-scale expeditions through those areas, regional information from there and POI submissions are still thin on the ground. There's a chance that some aspect of Distant Worlds 2 will venture into those regions, but again we'll know more about the expedition's specific goals later this year. Things have changed since 3302. Most notably, humanity is now facing the uncertain threat posed by the Thargoids. So far, there have been no reports of hyperdictions outside the Pleiades area, but a lot can happen between now and the expedition's launch. Do you think that the Thargoid invasion might create problems for distant worlds too? Are you planning to recommend explorers to bring some defensive equipment with them? We'll obviously be conscious that deep space explorers now have a new element of potential danger to contend with, and as a consequence the distant world's fleet will have armed escorts within its ranks. But we emphasise that this mission is one of peaceful exploration and scientific study. Contact protocols will be in place for all fleet members to adhere to during the expedition, and these will be prioritised on observation, study and possible communication, with military action used as a last resort. And only if the fleet or individual ships among it are directly threatened by Thargoids or any other sentient races encountered. The Pegasi Slave Railroad Terrorists or Freedom Fighters Written by Lewis Calvert The Galactic Railroad claims to restore the freedom of people sold into slavery in the anarchic Pegasi heartlands. Black Omega, the controlling government of more than a dozen Pegasi sector systems, claims the Railroad are nothing more than a group of terrorists, and it's certainly true that they have admitted to fomenting riots and causing chaos across several star systems in the last few months. The war ignited by the railroad in Black Amiga space has taken place. Our work there was much more effective than we realized. The situation became inflamed to the point of war. The full text of this anonymous Galactic Railroad public broadcast portrays a heroic, ragtag band fighting for freedom on behalf of those who cannot. However, many in the Pegasi region condemn them for disrupting commerce and everyday life including Dr. Herbert J. Glabotsky, PhD in Neurobiology and Neuroreconstruction. In the last few days, the Pegasi region has been racked with strife and war. A peaceful order which had been established and maintained was shattered. In his paper, Wongo, a scientific inquiry into the motivations of a terrorist, Dr. Glabotsky dissects the leader of the Galactic Railroad's character, actions, and morals. He himself had shown a complete lack of scruples when they, the slaves, became fodder. But melodramatically and insultingly to their memory, he wept for them. As a farce, we can see that Commander Tejerex is faced with the same opposition personally. He turns tails and runs, effectively demonstrating that he has no remorse for those who sacrifice themselves for his cause. Despite an apparent lack of public support, the railroad has continued to press a campaign of violence against Black Omega businesses. It is a move that seems to have worked. 
In the last few days, local news sources broadcast a statement from Black Amiga establishing regulations for the fair treatment of slaves and announced an end to the conflict with the Galactic Railroad. Apparently, peace is returning, as much as is possible in anarchy systems. But what does this mean for the Pegasi sector? Your correspondent accepted an invitation from Monolith Preacher, the de facto leader of Black Amiga, to visit Deggy's Bar at Clare Dock in Chagiri, the heart of Black Amiga territory. Unloading on the pad adjacent to mine was a shiny beluga from which groups of well-fed people were being ushered into the unloading terminal. Only the presence of extra security gave away what they really were. Property to be traded. Inside Deggies, despite the swirls of artificial fog and dim illumination, Preach, as I was invited to call him, wore sunglasses. Blonde, handsome and pale, he seemed totally relaxed, leaning casually against a table, sipping from a bottle of Harmer Silver Sea Rum. The skull emblazoned on his expensive coat seemed to be right at home. In another setting, another time, this man might have been a media star. I wanted to understand how Monolith Preacher saw Black Omega itself. Black Omega are a paramilitary group offering hardware, bodyguard units and advisors to those in need within the Pegasi sector. We offer a measure of protection to those who wish their own freedoms to be respected. We are proud members of the Pegasi sector Commonwealth. He delivered this with an orator's style. I was about to ask a follow-up question, but he cut me off neatly. Our detractors claim that we are also involved in funding hunters, illicit smuggling of chemicals into systems where they are forbidden, gun running, people trafficking, forced religious conversion, and brainwashing, manufacturing knockoff clothing and jewelry. The list is as long as they can make up crimes to ascribe to us, but none of them have any proof of such slander. He made a dismissive gesture. The fact is, people just don't like to admit that self-governance can work with the right people at the helm. There was no question at all that Preach considers Black Omega the right people. I admit this was not the thuggish pirate lord I had expected. We talked amiably about the recent history of the Pegasi region before turning to the recent conflict with the railroad, which did add a layer of frost to our interview. The railroad have engaged in protracted guerrilla warfare against our systems with minimal provocation. This is not an insurgency, as has been claimed, but rather a systematic escalation of terror tactics. The shadows in the booth seemed much more menacing as I asked about claims that slaves in Pegasi sector are victims of kidnapping or sold into slavery after being rescued from shipwrecks. Preacher's large sunglasses rendered his expression unreadable. What you need to understand is that people are free to do as they please amongst consenting adults as long as it doesn't hurt anyone unwilling. His free hand waved around the bar, taking in the DJ, the child bartender, the dimly lit booths and what I was beginning to realize was the sounds of fighting coming from the back rooms. Suffice to say that we have a range of activities available here at Deggies which would not be seen as correct in the eyes of other governments. I pressed him on the accusations of selling people rescued from shipwrecks into slavery. I must stress we have never rescued anyone from a ship disaster in order to bind them in chains. We hold by nautical standards and pirate honor in this. Preach was emphatic that I spell pirate correctly. I assured him I would, though its significance is still unclear. People are quick to judge, 
But perhaps one should wonder at what lengths freedom can really be given to people and still maintain an amount of moral conduct. The preacher continued talking at length about freedom and individual rights in something of a monologue before we got round to the topic of the recent settlement with the railroad. To his credit, Preach seemed to take it in his stride and I never saw his composure break, even though it must have been a sore point. The settlement was a necessity. We did not wish to lose our systems and yet more lives waiting for this conflict to end at some indeterminable point in the future. This is another example as to how we have been stuck playing their game due to the nature of their attacks and headless presence, so to speak. We shall continue to keep Pegasi a free and independent sector akin to the mythical Libertatia, and I personally will continue my work with the Kuma crew in order to try and keep this a reality on multiple fronts. As we wound up the interview, having already spent a lot more time at Deggies than I'd first anticipated, I offered him the chance to make a statement. He considered for a second and launched into his comfortable orator style. I wish to say that peace has been made. And once all this is over, we look forward to attempting to regain some semblance of stability here for the sake of our constituents. I ask you to look around this club and see how many people are enjoying themselves. The kid behind the bar can mix more and better cocktails than most men thrice his age. The folks having a knife fight in the pits are seasoned fighters who do so of their own accord and make a good amount of money for first blood combat, and we have medics on hand should anyone get too seriously injured. I myself am the reigning champion, and my title defense matches resulted in a loss of but a single drop of blood in each. Our drugs are traded in the open and a cut of all the proceeds go to help local charity concerns. The adult services have similar security, allowing people to indulge their vices with people who share them without fear or slander. Our resident DJ is said to be a collection of nanites who refuses any attempt at gender or species classification and mixes the most unique music in the galaxy. Breach offered me a drink from his bottle. I wasn't sure if this was a test or a genuine sign of camaraderie. But considering how open the man had been, I didn't refuse. More than anywhere else in the galaxy, except perhaps Hama itself, we feel this best encapsulates our motto. Freedom sells itself. We don't need anyone to liberate our populace. They are more free in Pegasi than anywhere else in the bubble. With that, the preacher got up and walked into the back rooms. The ambient music cranked up a notch, and my time at Deggies was over. It took me another few days to track down Damon, aka Commander Tejo X, apparently the mastermind behind the slave-freeing galactic railroad. The hollow fact was filmed with static jumps and the exact features of the man I was talking to were distorted. He started by saying that he couldn't risk being traced, hence the poor connection. I was anxious to understand what lay behind this man's decision to start a war against such a large and influential organization as Black Omega. Damon revealed that he hadn't always been a freedom fighter. While working in systems around uh, Haran and Estee, I came across people being bought and sold like cattle against their will. I couldn't turn away and began to realize that the only way to eliminate this kind of abuse was to fight to restore order in these anarchic areas of space. Immediately it was clear that Damon was not the careless extremist I'd expected after talking to Monolith Preacher. The name Railroad was inspired by 
ancient history, the fight against slavery when we were a purely earthbound species. Unfortunately, our nature has remained the same. Something in his tone made me ask if he'd been personally affected by slavery. His response was illuminating. He avoided the question completely. I prize independence of thinking more than anything. I'm not aligned to any power and I find elements of both empire and federation distasteful. But I can make that choice based upon personal belief and values. The most oppressive of peoples is the one who finds a free man and enslaves them. We spoke for a time about Black Omega and their claims that the railroad is nothing more than a terrorist group. Far from the agitated response I was expecting, Damon's tone was confident. Since time immemorial, the refuge of every oppressor has been to label their opponents as terrorists. It is a badge the railroad wears with pride when the title is being bestowed upon them by the likes of a pirate organization like Omega. We spent some time discussing the railroad's claims that it represents freedom for enslaved people and claims to liberate them. I asked how the liberated slaves felt. The fact that many a free man is willing to die to help achieve their freedom was something they appreciated and made me realize that though very high, the price of freedom from slavery wasn't something that could be measured in simple terms. In a tense moment, I asked about the innocent people who have been killed during the conflict, many of whom died as a direct result of Damon's actions or orders. His response was sharp, angry, and defensive. Any insurgency will have to get his hands dirty. It has involved an asymmetrical warfare against an established opponent. We have to bear those scars for the sake of the goals we are trying to achieve. In this point, the hollow fact blinked out. and It was another hour before I could get back in touch. Damon apologized, claiming that he feared the signal was being traced, so he needed to move to another channel. His image was sharper now. I was presented with a careworn man with a full beard and glasses. An image that reinforced my growing impression of a history teacher gone renegade. But it was time to ask about victory. The railroad won. But I wanted to see how Damon felt about the concessions he'd secured from Black Omega and whether he felt as though they would honor the deal. Our aim is the eradication of slavery. At the moment, that is a goal completely beyond our means, which means that we have to accept pragmatic gains in the meantime. I have absolutely no love or time for Omega, but they serve a purpose in bringing some control over a sizable number of systems in the Pegasi. Having them agree to a Bill of Rights and to protect the Liberation Corps in their previous territories means that while slavery continues there, at least we have got some agreement upon improved conditions and additionally, the agreement to hold no slaves longer than five years. I was surprised that Damon had such awareness of the realities of his crusade. I had expected someone more naively idealistic. Instead again, I was firmly reminded of a scholar or teacher more than a terrorist. It's not ideal. Nothing is in this universe we live in. But maybe the railroad can claim to have made the Pegasi a slightly better place. It's clear that Damon firmly and sincerely believes in the righteousness of what he and his allies are attempting, and that he's not necessarily the delusional megalomaniac Dr. Glaboski suggests. I offered Damon the chance to make a statement. With the reemergence of Thargoids, it is a tragedy that humanity remains blighted by this form of trade in human flesh. 
It is our small hope that other pirate factions see this agreement and follow the example set by this Bill of Rights without the need for bloodshed and turmoil in the systems under their nominal control. The Feds, Empire, and the Alliance, when will you take it upon your shoulders to carry this responsibility to end such crimes? We claim that the Thorgoids are an unknown evil. And yet we do not admit or take the necessary steps to deal with the known evils within. With that, the self-styled freedom fighter had to go. He told me before he logged off that he was moving on and I got the impression that he meant you won't be able to contact me again. Where Damon will end up, I've no idea. But I can't help feeling that he might just leave it a little better than he found it. Assuming he doesn't die in the process. So here it is, the two sides of this war over slavery. On the one side, the flamboyant, stylized monolith preacher of Black Omega and the Kumo crew, a man who prizes personal freedom above all else and who sincerely believes that people should be allowed to be completely free of all fetters. However, he seemed to find it hard to understand that the slaves being bought and sold around the Pegasi sector might not share the same view of freedom, and they themselves might not consider themselves to be free to say no. On the other side, we have the reserved but driven Daemon, Commander Tejo X, a man who apparently started a slave rebellion across multiple star systems simply because he, and people like him, perceived freedom being held back. It seems that Daemon feels each life lost quite deeply, and is governed by a fine moral balancing act that seems to equate to do more good than harm. Still, this man seems too willing to accept collateral damage, not just to the stability of entire star systems, but the lives of hundreds in pursuit of his own ideals. Black Omega's main complaint is not that they were challenged, it's that they weren't challenged face to face in what they would call honourable combat. The railroad, on the other hand, accepted they couldn't win an upfront battle, so they set up many small brushfire rebellions that were hard to put down. As the preacher said during our interview, a headless presence. Between these two sides are the slaves themselves. How do they fare in all this? Are they better off? Throughout my travels in the Pegasi sector, I managed to get some words with various slaves both before and after the end of the conflict. The slaves I spoke to before the settlement seemed resigned to their fate. Very few of them felt they had any options and were simply making the best of it, trying to survive and avoid as many punishments as possible. The better-treated ones seemed almost to feel as though they were valued beyond their material worth, and I met one or two who openly spurned the concept of being set free. In many ways these people reminded me of those who spent so long incarcerated that they find the idea of not being imprisoned highly uncomfortable, even to the stage where they begin to respect their captors and resist release. After the settlement I spoke to some of the same slaves again about the prospect of being made free after five years. Many were concerned, asking questions like, where will I live, and how will I eat? However, many had a glint in their eyes and a spring in their step. People who knew they just needed to survive and endure a little longer to regain freedom. As to the future of slavery in the Pegasi sector, I doubt the efforts of the railroad will stop it any time soon. The mass of history is very large, and it will take a significant long-duration burn to alter the trajectory of a whole sector, and even then... The chances are slavery will just be pushed into another sector of space. 
Should we settle for the concession that slaves will be treated well and offered freedom after a set time, kind of industry regulation? Or should we continue to strive for a total eradication of slavery in all its forms? I will leave you with the slogan of Black Omega. Freedom sells itself. Inra, Relic of a Past and Present War Written by Rasudin. INRA stands for the Intergalactic Naval Reserve Arm, not Invasive Necrotic Research Association. I cannot tell you how disappointed I was to learn this during my investigations into the recently discovered INRA bases. They represent a piece of our history as long forgotten as the Thargoids, but with the latter resurfacing in the galactic consciousness in a huge way, interest in this ancient organisation has begun to rise. There are whispers of a virus called Mycoid that decimated the Thargoids in our last war with them. Six bases believed to be leftover facilities from INRA before its dissolution in the 3200s have been discovered on the surfaces of various airless planets. What is the real history of INRA? What have they got to do with the galaxy as it is today? And why are they being discovered only now, at the hour of our greatest need? INRA, in its time, was the equivalent of our Aegis Initiative, See my previous column, The Aegis Deception, for my thoughts on Aegis. It was formed as a joint federal-imperial initiative. You see, they've done this before, to combat the Thargoid invaders of the time. Public reception of INRA was positive, seeing the organisation as an example of the cooperative genius that arises when the superpowers work together. They didn't have our modern insight into the inner workings of our governments. According to my research, INRA was a ruthless organisation, using the goal of destroying the Thargoids as a justification for any method. Few records exist today of their work, but it is more or less clear that their most successful experiment was that of a virus called mycoid, developed when one researcher observed the effects of a certain breed of fungus on Thargoid test subjects. The virus was devastatingly effective, humanity's most useful tool in repelling the invaders. It was mass-produced at many INRA bases, including the Maze chemical plant in HIP 59382. When, just a few weeks ago, a commander stumbled across Hollis Gateway, an abandoned INRA base on the surface of Hernitage 4A, they discovered a series of storage tanks marked Warning Mycohazard, from which a strange substance was leaking. Nestor Cartesius, an imperial senator, gave voice in an article of Galnet News to an idea the whole galaxy was considering. Can we research that virus in our struggle now? Setting aside the dubious ethics of using a virus created through experimentation on live subjects, I find it doubtful that the mycoid virus could be effective in countering the Thargoid's current attacks. First, if the weapon was so effective during their last invasion, it stands to reason that the Thargoids might, in over a hundred years, have developed a means to counter it. According to INRA records, it was not difficult for human researchers to create an effective vaccine. Also, we have no way of knowing if the samples that have survived to this day would be viable specimens from which to clone more. We have not yet recovered records of how INRA was able to produce the virus, and, given the extensive work someone or something, has put into expunging all records of the previous Thargoid invasion from our history, it seems unlikely that we will. What, then, can we learn from INRA? We can learn, for a start, 
that federal imperial cooperation in the face of the Thargoids is nothing new. Aegis is not an unprecedented initiative, and there is really nothing to stop the superpowers from cooperating in other ways as well. We also know that, as much as these organisations may claim to be conducting research to understand the aliens, they really are engaged in weapons research only. We should not be naive about this. Finally, we must investigate the nature of the cover-up which forced all knowledge of the human-Fargoid war into legend. We know that history repeats itself, and if we do not demand accountability of our protectors in the present, future humankind may forget everything that happens in these present days of war. In recent days, even more INRA bases have been discovered by dedicated commanders. One base in HIP 16824 references INRA attempts to reverse engineer the Thargoid's hyperdrive technology. Where has this research gone? There is at least a partial answer contained in the logs of this base. They tell of a dangerous attempt to lure in Thargoid ships to test new weapons technology, and in doing so, drew in a kind of mothership that apparently destroyed them. We had to uncover this knowledge for ourselves. Our overlords will not share it willingly with us. Throwing caution to the wind, I have visited some of these bases in my stealth-modified Imperial Courier for my research, listening to voice recordings that sound eerily as though they might have been recorded today and not more than a hundred years ago. These bases are not just relics. They are important memorials from which we can understand our present. All commanders, regardless of political alliance or involvement in the present war, should visit these sites and judge for themselves whether or not history is repeating itself. I must conclude this transmission here. Fly smart, commanders, if you can, and keep an eye on the sky. Raxler, where art thou? Written by Lewis Calvert. The mythical planet Raxla. Does it exist or does it not? If it does, then on Raxla there's an alien construct that's a gateway to other universes. And all that's in those universes in the way of bounty and treasures and aliens and life. By unknown source. Often attributed to the quasi-mythical trader Rafe Zetter of Lave, circa 3100. Let's be clear. Raxla is a myth. Despite the fact that there is no shortage of people who are willing to risk it all to head off into the black in search of this alluring legend, and the riches it supposedly holds, it remains a myth. Yet, despite the fact that we really know nothing about the planet, if it even is a planet, there are a few things that keep coming up time and again almost every time the legend is retold. 1. People have found it. This is a core aspect of each version of the legend. 2. Raxla is often associated with a little-known and hard-to-find group known as the Dark Wheel. 3. There is something on or in it that is some form of portal or gateway to somewhere else. Most or all of the people who come back after finding it apparently only have time to tell a friend of a friend's sister-in-law's co-pilot before meeting some mysterious and often grisly demise, or just vanishing entirely. There are often riddles and puzzles associated with it that apparently serve as some sort of map or guide, creators unknown. In our effort to give the average pilot a chance to get to grips with this slippery legend, we have sought out a few of those intrepid explorers who fearlessly search for this elusive place, despite the risks that come with this search. 
Iron out your tinfoil hat before reading any further. Commander Macross the Black maintains a public log of his quest to find Raxla, and he's been kind enough to share a few words with us today. Raxla. A certain celestial body. Place that isn't a place. Door that is also the key. The myth. This legend has captivated many commanders in the galaxy, including myself. I started the quest to find Raxler over two years ago. However, with 400 billion star systems, there's a lot of systems to search. The elite missions mentioned in my logbook gave me a small hope of finding something, but alas, with the disappearance of the missions and no clues whatsoever, it's not easy at all. Currently I'm circumnavigating the galaxy on the outer rim on a one year trip hoping to find clues at the very edges of the galaxy with the black void on one side and the splendid brightness of the core on the other. I want to believe. The logbook Commander Macross the Black refers to are his extensive public travel logs which detail tantalizing clues offered by a faction known as the Dark Wheel who are only reachable after attaining elite ranking and visiting Jameson Memorial in the Shinrarta Desra system. Others have interesting ideas that Raxla may not even be a planet at all. Commander Dr. Noesis says, I have a horrible feeling that Raxla is a metaphor for our own ships, a place that's not a place because it's a ship, and which has a hyperdrive that's both a door and key to accessing which space and is capable of taking us to any place in the galaxy. Seriously, Raxler is like some horrific theoretical fractal set. The closer you look, the more and more infinite it becomes. How about that? Perhaps we've all found our own personal Raxler. Back in the early days of spaceflight, before frameshift drives, traveling any distance was dangerous, even more than today. Many pilots of old felt special kinship with their ships that served as both homes, protectors and means to earn a living in a hostile and dangerous galaxy. It's entirely possible that some spacers consider their ships gateways to universes of bounties, treasures, aliens and life. Taking a break from his well-deserved downtime between expeditions, Commander Patrick Falcon shared with us details of his discovery of the crash site of the famous explorer Finn Macmillan. I am not someone given to speaking in terms of absolutes, so when I speak of Raxler, I always preface my statements with the qualifier of if Raxler exists. Yet if you were to press me for it, I would have to confess that I have no doubt that Raxler is as real as Earth. I believe it with all that is in me. There are so few clues to the Raxler mystery that almost any threat is worth pursuing. This is what led me to the Formidine Rift where I located the crash site of Commander Finn McMillan. I was able to salvage what was left of his ASP explorer, the Ouroboros, and decrypt his personal log files which included his research into Raxler. McMillan believed that Rave Zeta's alien structure is, in fact, part of a Talmor lens, the construction of which was the sole purpose of an alien civilization which called itself the Oisir Raxler. The evidence of this is tenuous at best, but can be pursued by anyone who can find the link between the names of Stephen Eisler and Robert Holdstock. The information is out there for those willing to pull back the curtain. 
Macmillan's logs, journals and research as well as the remains of his ship and his body were ferried back to the bubble. Research into additional legends and stories chronicled by those who preserve the original Dark Wheel myth continues with the hopes that somewhere inside those stories are further clues which will bring us closer to finding Raxler and unlocking our galaxy's deepest secrets. Commander Falcon's recovery of Macmillan's research data will undoubtedly spur on others to continue the hunt. It's worth mentioning that until recently, the Fermadine Rift itself was nothing more than a legend, a region of near-impassable darkness, a source of whispers that turned out to be entirely real. Whatever your interpretation or particular theories about the true meaning of Raxla, no one can deny that this legend has been captivating the imagination of a certain wild-eyed subset of the spacefaring community for at least 200 years. Stories of Raxla possibly even stretch back over a thousand years into the very earliest days of faster-than-light space exploration. If Raxla exists in the form that many believe, an interdimensional gateway on a planet of exotic, advanced alien technology, it certainly will represent something momentous in the history of humanity, the potential for us to become an intergalactic or interdimensional civilization. It could be that the secret of Raxla has been hidden, as some suggest, by some shadowy cabal until they decide we are ready to reach beyond the Milky Way. We wish you luck on the hunt for Raxla, Commanders. Thank you for listening to Issue 3 of Sagittarius Eye Magazine. This issue featured articles written by Louis Calvert, Souverine, Rasudin and Wilfred Sephiroth and was edited by Souverine and Wilfred Sephiroth. This audio edition featured the voices of Darrell Nahr, Edel Weiss, Rosetta Stone, Rini, Souverine and Wotherspoon, and was edited by Adernis, Edel Weiss and Souverine. Music was composed and performed by Dustin Midnight Driscoll. Additional music by Tocoso. We would like to thank our Patreon subscribers for their continued support of our efforts to entertain and inform the galaxy by commanders for commanders. For copies of back issues of our magazine, please visit our website at sagittarius-i.com. Sagittarius I was created using assets and imagery from Elite Dangerous with the permission of Frontier Developments PLC for non-commercial purposes. It is not endorsed by nor reflects the views and opinions of Frontier Developments and no employee of Frontier Developments was involved in the making of it. Sagittarius.